0: This morning we continue our series called Taking Jesus Literally as we look through the gospel texts in Matthew in the lectionary during this summer, and we maybe struggle with some of the things that Jesus might ask of his disciples. I bet you hear these words, starting in Matthew 9, verse 35. Jesus traveled among all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, announcing the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every sickness. And when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them, because they were troubled and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The size of the harvest is bigger than you can imagine, but there are few workers. Therefore, plead with the Lord of the harvest to send out workers for the harvest. He called his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to throw them out and to heal every disease and every sickness. Here are the names of the 12 apostles. First, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. Philip and Bartholomew. Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. James, the son of Elpheus and Thaddeus. Simon, the Cananean, and Judas, who betrayed Jesus. Jesus sent these 12 out and commanded them, don't go among the Gentiles or into a Samaritan city. Go instead to the lost sheep, the people of Israel. As you go, make this announcement. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those with skin diseases, and throw out demons. You received without having to pay, therefore give without demanding payment. Workers deserve to be fed. So don't gather gold or silver or copper coins for your money belts to take on your trips. Don't take a backpack for the road or two shirts or sandals or a walking stick. Whatever city or village you go into, find somebody in it who is worthy and stay there until you go on your way. When you go into a house, say, peace. If the house is worthy, give it your blessing of peace. But if the house isn't worthy, take back your blessing If anyone refuses to welcome you or listen to your words, shake the dust off your feet as you leave that house or city. I assure you that it will be more bearable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah on Judgment Day than it will be for that city. Look, I'm sending you as sheep among wolves. Therefore, be wise as snakes and innocent as doves. Watch out for people, because they will hand you over to the councils, and they will beat you in their synagogues. They will haul you in front of governors and even kings because of me, so that you may give your testimony to them And to the Gentiles, whenever they hand you over, don't worry about how to speak or what you will say because what you can say will be given to you at that moment. You aren't doing the talking, but the spirit of my father is doing the talking through you. Brothers and sisters will hand each other over to be executed. A father will turn his child in. Children will defy their parents and have them executed. Everyone will hate you on account of my name, but whoever stands firm until the end will be saved. Whenever they harass you in one city, escape to the next because I assure you that you will not go through all the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. O Lord, let the words of my mouth and the thoughts and meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. For you, O Lord, are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. As human beings, I think that all of us has a recency bias. Do we not? I'll confess to you this morning, I have a guilty pleasure, and it's this. I like listening to sports talk radio. (laughs) And it drives my wife insane when she gets into the car that I just drove and she just hears men yelling at each other. And she says, how do you listen to that doesn't it make you so stressed out and i basically say well i don't really actually care that much about these things but it's kind of interesting to me so anyway so so i and here's the deal after every great game or run by a team or by an individual player we immediately as a culture go to crown that person or that team the greatest of all time the goat And we do this so that ESPN and all of their networks have something to talk about all day. This is why this debate exists, right? They have like 17 channels, and they have to talk about something. And so we do this. So so they want to talk, you know, and the sports talk guys, they have to be convinced that their life has a meaning and a purpose, so they have to talk about something on the air. So every time LeBron James breaks another record like this year when he broke the scoring title for all time, because when I was in my freshman college, year of college, he was entering the NBA, which makes you feel like a massive failure when you compare, but anyway. And, and so, so LeBron, you know, they talk about him, and well, is he, is he the greatest of all time? And then everyone who watched Michael Jordan as I did religiously as a child play for the Chicago Bulls says, no, Michael Jordan is clearly the greatest of all time, and we have all these ways. But the problem, right, is that we can't actually see Michael Jordan in his prime play LeBron James other than in a video game. And so we don't really have a way to settle this debate. You know, the same thing happens, right? The the question gets thrown around when Patrick Mahomes starts winning Super Bowls like he is, like, after the first one, the question that goes around is, is he elite? And then they they spend a long time on Sports Talk Radio talking about the definition of elite and what that means, as opposed to great, um, which is just a stupid conversation. But this is what I listen to sometimes coming home from work. And when we're watching incredible performers, no matter what it is, whether it's an incredible actor or actress or an incredible singer or someone like Taylor Swift singing in a rainstorm in front of 80,000 people and selling tickets for God knows how much money or whatever it is, it feels like they're the best that we've ever seen. And because we're not watching them play the people 100 years before or anything like that, if I asked you today which part of this text today is the hardest part to take literally, which had kind of three sections in and of itself, I imagine you'd start with the highly offensive words you heard at the end. Those first words that we might struggle with taking Jesus literally. Brothers and sisters will hand each other over to be executed. A father will turn his child in. Happy Father's Day. Children will defy their parents and have them executed. Everyone will hate you on account of my name, right? And so it's ironic that the Revised Common Lectionary shows that for today of all days, but that's what they did. It's not my fault. But really, in that text, right, this is about the cost of, Of discipleship. Jesus is 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 wanting his followers to know that hey, like it's gonna be really hard. It's gonna be so hard that families might get split up on account of my name because of following after me. And when Matthew is writing this, right, we have to remember Matthew is composing this gospel probably thirty-five years after Jesus. Matthew was an eyewitness to Jesus, but these gospel accounts took a while, and so by that time there are communities of people following Jesus who are actually facing the kind of persecution that Matthew's talking about. When Jesus was talking about this to them, uh, they didn't have a context for it yet, so Jesus is kind of seeing into where this is all going to go after his death and resurrection. And the reality that people are going to suffer big time for following Jesus. We know that did happen soon after, um, as, as, as the church was formed in, the, in its first few hundred years. And we know that still today, people suffer for following Jesus. So those might be the first words that we struggle with taking Jesus literally. But then we might walk backwards a little bit more, and we hear the challenge to the disciples I mean, they are going to carry out the ministry of Jesus, right? He tells them that they should heal the sick and cast out demons and do exactly everything that he has been doing, and he's going to empower them to do that. That alone is hard stuff. That's a hard call and challenge for them to do. And then he says, here's how you're going to do it. Take nothing with you and rely wholly on the hospitality of everyone that you go into. Now, let's talk for a second about hospitality, right? In in Jesus' day, in the ancient Near East, like, People would stop by on the doorstep, and it wasn't just that, like give them a cup of cold water. It was like they were stopping in and saying, hey, can I stay a couple nights? Or can I stay this time? Now, we don't think about that other than you might feel like that when your in-laws come into town. But that's a whole other thing entirely. But but the reality is is that it's is that we don't quite understand that when, when Jesus says, you go into their house and you say, peace, you say, shalom. And if they say it back to you, then you're all good. But if they, if they don't want to hear it and they don't want to receive you, wipe the dust off and leave town and get out of there, right? And don't, because the kingdom is not for them yet, right? And so those words in and of themselves are hard. But, but Jesus says this to them at the beginning when he's giving them this commission, He says, don't go among the Gentiles or into a Samaritan city. Go instead to the lost sheep, the people of Israel. And I think when we read Jesus in the Gospels, we start to realize something a little bit strange to us. Why does Jesus spend almost all of his time and effort exclusively to Jewish people? We, we think of, hey, you know, Jesus says go into the world and preach the gospel, but Jesus himself didn't go into the world. Jesus was basically in between Galilee and Jerusalem in his entire time of ministry, and he was often challenged, and, and, and people would say, well, well, shouldn't you go broader than that? And Jesus is saying, no, it's got to start here. It has to start with the lost sheep of Israel. This goes all the way back to the call of Abraham, if we remembered God says to Abraham, I will make you a great nation and all the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. Through you, right? And, and, and God essentially establishes his covenant with Abraham which becomes a covenant with Israel. And that covenant with Israel basically says like, you are my chosen people. Jesus himself, son of David, a Jewish, a Jewish child born to be the Messiah for the Jewish people, right? And it's from there, it's from there that then all the families of the earth can be blessed. But Jesus' concern is first with the lost sheep of Israel. That's hard for us to get in our context today. We don't always understand that. But even those aren't the hardest words of the text for me. My struggle with Jesus isn't even there. It's not even when he says that you're going to be hated because of me. No, I go further back in the scripture, perhaps in what seems to be the most innocent and innocuous words of this entire passage, is where I struggle the most. The size of the harvest is bigger than you can imagine, but there are few workers. Therefore, plead with the Lord of the harvest to send out workers for his harvest." Now, you might say, well, good, gosh, that's an easy one. Why you struggle with that, preacher? I'm going to tell you, okay? My church growing up every February had missions month. I mean, it meant that the sanctuary was decorated really cool. They hung up, like, international flags all over the place. And morning and night service, because we had night ser- We were A, Baptist, and B, real Christians. And so, like, we had morning and night service, okay? <laughs> And and, and in, that, in those services, different missionaries would speak. And my church actually directly supported lots of missionaries. We didn't have apportionments like we have in the United Methodist Church where we give dollars to a central entity and there's missionaries that go out on our behalf. It was even more direct like that. And so some of these missionaries would come back on furlough or other people would come and speak and share. And almost all of the time, the passage was either, right, go into all the world and make disciples, or it was this. The harvest is plentiful and the workers are few. Therefore, plead with the Lord of the harvest to send out more workers into the harvest. The the interpretation of that text was not very hard, it seemed, when a preacher was bringing that text to us. The harvest is the unbelieving world, specifically the hardest imaginable places to go the Indias and the Chinas and places like that. That was the harvest. The workers are all Christians, subtext, all of you. So go unto the ends of the earth. If you go the farthest distance possible, it seemed, and give up the most, then you are the real Christian. And for an achievement-oriented kid and teenager like me, this felt like a challenge. To be the best Christian, the one who would get the A-plus marks on my Jesus report card, I needed to go to the hardest, most unreachable place. I needed to give up the most and be the most willing to suffer. And often I would find myself thinking, I haven't suffered enough. I haven't really suffered at all. I haven't faced martyrdom like these people have before me. Aren't we all called to do this? Shouldn't we all be streaming to the altar today to go to the areas that have least heard the message of Jesus? Should everyone, in other words, be a foreign missionary? And here's the problem I found. I had no desire whatsoever to do this. None. I don't feel a calling on my life to be a missionary in a foreign land. And because of this, I felt for years like my calling was illegitimate. If I really loved God, then I would want to reach the highest heights of being a foreign missionary. If I really trusted that God would provide, then I would go wherever God would send me. Now, is there a calling to be a missionary in a foreign land? Absolutely, yes. And it's a powerful calling. And there are incredible people who are the reason a thriving Christianity exists in places that had not heard the name of Jesus before, but I think that the missions month that I grew up with was either misspoken or more likely I misunderstood the message. Do you ever feel like God couldn't possibly use you? Maybe you didn't ever want to be a pastor, or you didn't feel called to teach the Sunday school class, or be the chair of a committee, so you feel like you're lesser than other Christians, than other people sitting next to you in the pew. I'm sorry if my leadership has ever made you feel that way. I recognize that sometimes we hold up ideal pictures of what the harvest worker looks like, and you don't share the same calling as that person. So rather than making you feel challenged in that moment, like me during missions month, you might feel ashamed. Or like the gifts that you offer don't really matter. I do think Jesus was challenging everyone who heard him that day to be a worker for the harvest, after all, right after he says the harvest is plentiful, the workers are few, pray to the Lord of the harvest. What does he do? He sends the disciples to go be the workers, right? He, he sends them out into the fields to do it right then. But Jesus didn't intend for a church full of people to pray so that one of them would go become the harvest worker. No, you're the harvest worker. And where's the harvest? Sure, it's in India and Ghana. And it's also with your neighbors. It's also the spaces and places in our world that need God's deep healing touch. Jesus meant to be empowering in what he says in these words. And I have experienced it as disempowering. Jesus meant to be empowering. And I have experienced it as disempowering. I was in this leadership program five years ago that I had the privilege of doing a leadership cohort through this program, and it was a wonderful experience. And the thing I learned the most in this process was this, you don't need to learn anything else to be a good leader. You actually have everything within you. You don't need some toolkit to go pick up, some conference to go to, to learn how to be a leader. No, you you have the gifts within. The question is how you recognize those gifts and how the community calls those out of you and how you get to share those with everyone else. The problem is that we get in our own way. I don't have the right skills to do that, we might say, or I can't sing or play music, so I can't lead worship, or I can't commit the the time right now to that ministry, so probably I shouldn't do any of them. And Jesus is standing in front of us saying, I have given you everything that you need. You have all the gifts that you need. And you will go out and do the very work that I am doing. That's what the church's job is. It's not just those disciples who are supposed to heal and cast out demons and and announce that that God's kingdom had come. No, that's our very job. That is who we are as a church. So stop trying to be the best Christian or thinking that you're not. There is no such thing. Jesus isn't looking for perfect workers. He's looking for you. Amen.